Tuesday. I was thinking about posting this episode yesterday, but just given the fact that it was, you know, quote, independence, end quote, day, um, just thought I would hold off and post it on July 5th. And um, I'm really, really just excited about this episode and uh, excited to share it with you guys because I learned so much speaking with um, Dr. Steinberg and I think she answers a lot of questions that I had and also just clarifies a few things to people who, you know, may may not know like as much science behind um you know, the science behind abortion and the the mental health af- uh, aspects that um go into effect uh, with unintended pregnancies and with abortions and things like that. So I wanted to, I, I, one thing I love about having a podcast is it really gives me the opportunity to learn, but also have a platform to teach other people, um, or give spread information, um, with people in the science world and the research world and just educate people because I think that's what our world needs more than anything right now is just education, especially free education, because if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you're not paying for it. So um, share it with your friends, share it with anyone who's interested in the intersection of mental and reproductive health. I think you'll learn a lot. And um, just a quick plug before I actually begin the episode, because it's something that... um, Julia talks about, but there's this organization called Aid Access that supports women, girls, trans men, and non-binary people um, with an unwanted pregnancy to access an abortion or miscarriage treatment. So um, if you go to aidaccess.org, you will be able to learn more. Um, So I just wanted to quickly plug that before we get into the episode, but enjoy uh, and let me know, you know, your thoughts. I'd love to hear them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Solace and the City. Today, I am so excited and honored to be here with Dr. Julia Steinberg, who is an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Health, um, who focuses her research on the intersection of mental and reproductive health. So uh, thank you so much for being here. I'm as you mentioned, I'm not surprised that you said, you know, you started doing a lot more podcasts this week, considering um, the current events that are going on right now. So, um, yeah, I'm really honored just to be speaking with you and am excited to to learn more about everything that you do your research on. Thank you, Zoe. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Great. Well, if you don't mind just starting off by telling me a little bit about yourself where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Um, where'd you go to school and what, what did you study and yeah, what's your story? Sure. Um, so where am I from? I, I'm from Ohio, actually, Northwest Ohio, Toledo, Ohio. 
Um, and then I, I went to undergrad in, um, at the University of Toledo in Ohio and then went to um, graduate school in Arizona at Arizona State University, um, go, uh, go Sun Devils. And um, I was, I'm trained as a social psychologist, so I was in the psychology department there. Um, then um, I w- went um, a little further west to California at University of California, San Francisco, and was a Charlotte Ellertson postdoctoral fellow in abortion and reproductive health. Um, and now I have come back um, to the East Coast or come to the other coast. Um, and and now, as you mentioned, an associate professor in the Department of Family Science um, in the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland. Amazing. It's, I saw that you actually minored in mathematics. I did, yes. I had a, um, I majored in psychology with a minor in mathematics, um, just something I was interested in, I think helped um, also one of the things about social psychology programs is that there, um, there's a lot of training in quantitative methodology. Um, and so it, that definitely came in handy um, having having had that mindset um, or uh, that background um, when I was getting graduate training in um, in social psychology. Yeah, a, a quick fun fact. Um, so I I was actually an applied math major um, in my under when I was as an undergrad, and <laughs> now I'm about to go to school for social work. So <laughs> completely different. But I actually I've always been so intrigued by psychology. I thought that like. When I, when I was younger, I thought I wanted to study psychology and physics. Like I had such a specific route. Um, and I, you know, part of the requirements for my uh, master's is going to be statistics. And because I'm five years out of like when I took a stats course, they might make me take it again. And when I found that out, I was so livid because my stats 420 class or 430 like ruined my life it was the hardest class ever and I was like please believe me I've taken stats my major was stats but just just an aside but I thought that was interesting that you know you you um had similar interests as I did yeah it is and I'm sure you'll be fine if you have to take stats again my stats was like so theoretical though it was so high up and so almost when I was looking at practice exams I'm like I don't even, this is a different stats class. Like, I don't even know what, you know, it's like the, ba- like more of the basic stuff, which honestly I could use a refresher on. I'm just really lazy. So I prefer to not <laughs> have to take it again. Um, so how did you become specifically focused on research that was, you know, around family planning and um, the interplay of mental health and reproductive events or experiences? Sure. Um, so when I, I went to grad school with sort of this idea, um, I was interested in psychological issues that were pertinent to women. Um, so I knew that going into graduate school, a wide range of sort of issues that I that were pertinent to women, but it was always for me, um, the things that I was most passionate about were sort of um, thinking about issues that were pertinent to women. Um, and I had a, a terrific mentor in grad school, Dr. Nancy Felipe Russo, um, who introduced me to this field um, of sort of research at the intersection of mental and reproductive health. Um, and I really just began working with her on some research aiming to understand the relationship between abortion and mental health. Um, and then in, um, in this 
um, in grad school, um, when I was coming to end grad school, I had a couple different opportunities um, to pursue in terms of uh, a postdoc. Um, one was, was to focus more on my dissertation work, which really had, which actually was very different and had to do with um, stereotypes around um, math uh, for women um, and sort of the effects of these stereotypes on, on women's performance in these fields. Um, and or the other had to do with more of this research around abortion and mental health, which I had started with um, with my mentor, Dr. Uh, Nancy Felipe Russo. And so I, I chose um, the research to pursue the postdoc um, uh, on abortion and reproductive health. So the Charlotte Ellerson postdoc um, on abortion and mental health that I mentioned earlier. Um, and I chose that one because it really allowed me to learn more about abortion and reproductive health. Um, and I, I, I saw, and I, I would still say to this day, there are few social psychologists who are really working in this area of sort of um, abortion and, and reproductive health. Um, and so um, this postdoc was really allowed me to begin um, the portfolio that I, I now have today um, at the intersection of mental and reproductive health. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, um, you know, it's, it's, one thing, and this is kind of an aside, but it's it's definitely related. Um, my my current job, I I work um, in the the sales department of a mental health company, and so um, mm. one thing that I be, I was lucky enough to do was I was lucky enough to kind of collaborate with Kind Body and um, have just really interesting discussions about you know the mental toll that things like IVF and, um, you know, uh, egg freezing and, and a lot of things like that take on uh, the mental toll that it has on a women. And, and, and thus, like we did a partnership with uh, Talkspace and Kind Body to kind of highlight the, the overlap there. And um, it's interesting to me that there aren't, you know, more there isn't more research done around this topic or maybe there is now. I mean, I'm sure there probably will be going forward, but um, it's cool that you were, it seems like kind of at the forefront of that. Yeah. I mean, so there is, so I think the research that you're talking about around like um, sort of going through fertility treatment services, it sounds like there is a, a large body, a decent body, I should say a large, but there is a pretty decent body of research. I would say um, that actually I have a, a graduate student who's very much interested in that. Um, and I've been work, been able to work with her on that around thinking about uh, fertility treatments and how that, um, you know, how, as you said, like it, it's not, um, it, it can be stressful, a stressful experience for many people um, experience having to go through fertility treatments. Um, um, and so I, you know, I have been able to get into that. And then in terms of, I don't want, I don't want to make it sound like I, there certainly has been work around abortion and mental health before me. Um, and, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the people doing that again was my mentor, um, as I had mentioned, Dr. Nancy Felipe Russo. Um, but I think there has been, I would say in, in probably the last 10 to 12 years. So since about 2010 or so, there has been a, 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 a burgeoning of research in this area. So there has been, a, I would say there has been more research that has probably been done in this area in the last 12 years. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I, I can see how like there's like difference because of the, um, you know, obviously with, uh, uh, IVF and things like that, you know, you are getting more, um, 
estrogen and, and all these hormones that can lead to that. So I, I, I totally um, get that. But um, that was my, I guess, introduction into the, the overlap. Um, so I wanted to go over kind of two of your research articles that I found to be very interesting. And it's, you know, wild to think that these were published, oh my gosh, like eight, almost eight, over eight years ago now. Um, but there's, you know, still a lot that can be learned. So I'm just going to read a, a little bit about your first article that I'm going to discuss. So um, in October of 2014, you published a research article uh, titled Psychological Aspects of Contraception, Unintended Pregnancy, and Abortion. Um, and this review focuses on these three common reproductive health experiences in U.S. women's lives. Um, as you stated in your article, as of 2014, 51% of pregnancies in the United States are unintended, which blew my mind. Okay. Um, uh, I, I will just say that that has come down a little. I think the, oh, really? the, the most recent data is it's 45%. We're still pretty high as you see, but, but yeah, it's around 50 it, as it still seems to be around the 45 to 50%. That's yeah. still mind blowing. Like, wow. And then 30% of us women will have an abortion by the age of 45. Um, again, as of the 2014 findings, that number, I imagine, it's probably stayed around the same, maybe gone up. Yeah, I mean, so uh, uh, yeah, I'm not happy to interject and just tell you what the number. Is. So it's actually it's one in four, so it's about 25 percent of women now. Okay, will have an abortion by the age of 45. And then 99 percent of U.S. women will use contraception at some point of their reproductive lifespans, which sounds about right to me. And and just to clarify, contraception can be like condoms, the, any form of to. Per, okay. Um, yeah, it can. I mean, yeah, exactly. And it even includes, I think, things like, um, you know, natural methods like um, uh, like the rhythm method or withdrawal. Um, mm -hmm. But I still yeah. But I and I think if I remember the most recent data, it's like over I want to say over 80 percent, maybe even 85 percent, 87 percent of women will use the pill. So it is a large at some point in their reproductive life. So a lot of people do use, um, I guess I'm trying to say some prescription contraceptive. Methods. Yeah. Yeah, that's good to add. Um, so, yeah, I was, even if these stats have changed, like mind blown. Um, and I wanted to thank you for, you know, shedding light on the mental health aspects of each of these common experience in women's lives. Um, so with the Supreme Court of the United States' recent ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade, I was hoping that we could focus on the latter two experiences. Um, so my first question for you is, what were some of the psychological effects of unintended pregnancy that you found in your research? Yeah, so um, so let me first just say thank you so much for prefacing um, with sort of the saying how the what are I guess how common these all these experiences are, um, and um, and so I just want to draw your attention to a few things, and so. Um, so this review, this was really a review article of existing research. So it wasn't original research, but rather we were reviewing existing research that had been done. Um, and I did want to connect unintended pregnancy and abortion and just let people know things like, um, you know, 95% of abortions are due to an unintended pregnancy, right? So it's estimated, that's what the estimate is. So the overwhelming majority of abortions are because of an unintended pregnancy, right? Whereas another 5%, it's estimated are due to an intended pregnancy, right? And so that could be something like a maternal or fetal health condition, something like that, right? Um, um, and then, um, 
so with that in mind, um, I want to, I think it's important to think about sort of the research on abortion and mental health, right? And so what do we know about the research on abortion and mental health? And then what, what do we know about um, individuals who choose to carry an unintended pregnancy to term, right? So people who give birth to an unintended pregnancy versus those who give birth to an intended pregnancy. Um, and so how does that affect rates of postpartum depression? So let me first start with the abortion and mental health research. Um, and so I just want to make First thing I want to say about that is um, make very clear that um, there are a lot of claims out there um, that abortion does cause mental health problems. Um, and I just want to, and this claim has been used for restricting access to abortion in a lot of places um, in the US, a lot of states. Um, and I just um, want to summarize what the science says. And the science is very clear that abortion does not cause uh, mental health problems. Um, and I know we may come back to that in a little while, so I'm just gonna leave that at that and then go on to the unintended pregnancy um, that are carried to term versus the intended pregnancies. Um, and so for that research, um, in, in terms of thinking about postpartum depression, there is a, a good amount of research that does seem to support this idea that um, those who have an unintended pregnancy that they give birth to are more likely um, to have postpartum depression than those who have an intended pregnancy. Um, that they, they give birth to. Um, I think that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I imagine there's a lot of factors that, because, you know, there's there's a lot of different, I guess, ways that an unintended pregnancy can, you know, come about. And so, for example, if it's just, you know, you use contraception, but it didn't work. It didn't work, yeah. Or, that happens. But there's also to the extreme of, it being a rape or it being um, a product of incest. And I think one thing that's just really scary with the Supreme Court's ruling is that these, um, you know, states that used to say, okay, you know, abortion is illegal except for cases of rape or except for cases of incest have changed those laws. And so I'll, I, I imagine that, you know, the the these i guess like findings might be for lack of a better word like kind of skyrocket in the unintended pregnancy department um now as opposed to in 2014 i mean obviously yeah so i mean i think you're yeah so i mean i think you're hitting on something which is the the recent supreme court ruling right will make it so that there will be a lot more people who um will not be able to access an abortion for their unintended pregnancy, right? And so there will be more people who are carrying unintended pregnancies to term than otherwise, right? And we know that unintended pregnancies that are carried to term increase your risk of postpartum depression relative to intended pregnancies that are carried to term. And so, right, I mean, I think you're onto something, which is um, we are just making it by making it harder for people or um for making it impossible for people to access abortions right or well, by not being able to access abortions that means people will be carrying unintended pregnancies to term which will mean we'll have more people in our society with postpartum depression yes uh yeah exactly and um one thing i i found interesting was i in, in your article um you know part of the reason that I, I'm asking, you know, does abortion harm women's mental health is I guess President Reagan requested this, uh, that I requested 
something. Um, he requested a report, yeah, a report from C. Everett Coop, the Surgeon General mm-hmm. at the time, yep, on, on sort of what the health effects of abortion are. And the findings, I get, I like, as you mentioned, said that no, they don't affect it. So my question is, like, how then did, if you know, I mean, I know this takes it more into like policy and, and politics, but how did, like, with that finding, if they're like, okay, it doesn't affect women's mental health but we still don't want it. Like how, like how, if, even though the science and, you know, the findings said, nope, it does not harm women's mental health. And Reagan and co were like, okay, but we still, we like, that's not the answer we wanted to hear, but we're still going to run with it. Do you, do you know anything about like why that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I know why, but so that, so there are published study, right. There are, pieces that are published in the scientific literature that do conclude and come to the conclusion that abortion does harm women's mental health. So um, it looks like there's a debate in the literature, but I, you know, I, it is, a, it is a false equivalence. There isn't really a debate. Um, there are, what there are is there's some studies that are published that have serious methodological flaws. Um, and so those studies that have serious methodological flaws um, come to the conclusion that abortion harms women's mental health. Um, but they have serious methodological flaws and cannot be used um, to make that conclusion. Um, and so, for example, one, ex- one um, example of a methodological flaw is that these studies infer causation from correlation, right? That's the number one thing you learn in statistics, mm-hmm. right? Just because there's a correlation, talking about your statistics class that you're going to have, um, just because there's a correlation, right? Doesn't mean that that means there's a causation, um, and so there are some studies that find there's a correlation between abortion and mental health. Um, but some, some of these studies don't even know if the mental health outcome occurred before or after the abortion. And so it may actually be right that mental health is leading individuals to have unintended pregnancies and then have abortions, right. Um, as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. Um, and, and so, um, it, it, that's maybe one reason, um, that, you know, there are these, there are policies um, and there have been policies, um, you know, over the last, uh, you know, 10 years, more than that, but um, I've been involved a little bit in sort of that around the last 10 years around um, that, that are justified by this idea that abortion harms women's mental health. Yeah. And there's, I mean, as you kind of alluded to, there are just so many factors and like you, you talk about this in your research, but there's so many factors that go into play, as you said, like the state of the mental health of the person before the pregnancy, the income, the, uh, you know, the um, income class of the person, the um, the racial background, which could contribute to, you know, uh, like prejudice and other like predis- other factors that cause someone to not be in a good place and then have an unwanted pregnancy that they either can or you know, get access to abortion, but it was probably takes a huge financial toll. So there's, I feel a, a lot of different factors. So just as you said, um, you can only kind of work with like, as without all these like confounding different things. Um, and it seems like taking aside all of those factors that could conflict or, you know, skew the findings, what you found is that at the end of the day, abortion does not, um, yeah, lead to a, a harm in a woman's mental health. 
Yeah. I mean, and just, I guess, to make it a little more concrete, sort of, so in some of my work, I do find using nationally representative data, U.S. nationally representative data, that abortion is a, so there is this correlation, right? But when you do control for things like you're saying, like prior mental health problems, prior adverse experiences, like intimate or, or existing, like intimate partner violence, right? Or childhood adversities, um, things like um, childhood physical or sexual abuse. When you control for all these things in your analysis, there's actually no longer an association between abortion and depression, suicidal ideation, anxiety disorders. Um, and so that's how we know, right? Abortion is not causing mental health disorders because there's no longer an association when you do control for and consider these other factors. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in another research article that you published in 2015, you assess the mental health outcomes among women seeking abortions by comparing um, women and women having later abortions with women who were denied abortions. Uh, what were some of the research findings that came out of this study? Yeah, so this was a study led by um, Dr. Diana Green Foster from the UC from UCSF. So she was I was at UCSF at the time. Um, she was a colleague, um, and so she, this. Um, she was really interested in sort of examining um, this study it was around, um, and there was a lot of studies. This was the Turnaway study. And so there were about 50 to hundred papers that have come out of this study. Um, and so this study was really interested in looking at women who uh, were able to get an abortion because they were just under the gestational limit of the clinic in which they were seeking an abortion. Um, and those who were uh, denied an abortion because they were just over the gestational limit of the clinic in which they were seeking an abortion. And so this was done, I should say also, this was, women were recruited in 2008 to about maybe 2010, 11 or so was when the recruitment period occurred. So this was a recruitment of, you know, 10 to 12 years ago was when the recruitment occurred. Um, and so she was really interested in sort of what happened to those who were denied an abortion. What were the physical and mental health outcomes of individuals who were denied an abortion? Um, and so this particular study, this particular paper focused on sort of the depression and anxiety symptoms um, I think up to about three years after either being able to get or, or um, being denied an abortion. And so what we found was that those who were denied an abortion had initially had higher levels of anxiety symptoms. So at eight days after being denied an abortion, um, the, the individuals who, who were denied had higher levels of anxiety than those who were actually able to get their abortion um, at eight days. So eight days after being denied versus eight days after actually getting your abortion, those who were denied had higher levels of anxiety symptoms. Um, but by um, six months, the anxiety symptoms that were higher in the, those denied had actually subsided. And so they were equal to, and they had gone down to right the levels um, of those who were able to get an abortion. Um, and so over time, anxiety symptoms in both groups declined. Um, as well as depressive symptoms also declined over time. Um, and there were never any differences in terms of depressive symptoms. Um, and so what, you know, it appears that at least in, initially it, when this study was conducted and in, in, in that context, those who were able to get an abortion did have lower levels of anxiety right shortly afterwards compared to those who were denied an mm -hmm. abortion. And were these participants denied an abortion because of the time they were able to, it wasn't because of like where they were living, like the state. So it had to, so it did have to do with like, the, it wasn't the state per se, but the clinic they were seeking an abortion at didn't go um, as far along as the person was in their gestation, right? So if the person was seeking an abortion, I'm just throwing out there, right? An example at, like say they were seeking an abortion at, I don't know, 
18 weeks and the clinic only went up to 17 weeks, mm-hmm. then they were not able to get an abortion right. Or they could even be just one day over, right. Yeah. That, that line, um, of, of that the clinic has, and they were not able to get an abortion. I see. Um, so my follow-up question, and obviously this, we don't know yet, but what are your thoughts and like, I guess, um, you know, hypotheses of how the Supreme Court's decision will have an impact on um, depressive and anxious symptom trajectories among, you know, these two cohorts. If, let's say, instead of, you know, the time frame, it's a woman in New Jersey versus a woman in Texas. Yeah, no, I think that's a, 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 a good question, um, right? And I think... Um, Right. I think we have data again from the Turnaway study. This the study was called the Turnaway study um, that we you know that strongly suggests that at least initially there will be higher levels of anxiety. Right. And I should say there was another paper. There have been other papers that have shown that not only were there higher levels of anxiety initially, but there were also higher levels of stress. Um, there were lower levels of self-esteem at that eight-day mark, um, and then there were also lower levels of life satisfaction at that eight-day mark relative to those who were able to get an abortion. Um, and so, right, this really suggests um, that at least initially being denied an abortion is 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 not good for mental health. Um, and we're in a very different context now. Right. And, and um, there will be a lot more individuals who are going to be denied an abortion. Right. Um, and so I think we are in a different context than we when this study was conducted. So it is. A, a scientific question to know what happens to these individuals' um, mental health, right? I mean, not only are we in a, um, a different place because of the Supreme Court decision, but I, I do want to make sure people understand that um, we have been seeing a, a steady increase in restrictive abortion policy since about 2010, right? So it's not, certainly this decision was, was the worst, um, but there have been lots of states that have been passing restrictive abortion policies. As, as, as you know, the Texas law went into effect uh, in September. Um, there had been a lot of other laws in terms of requiring women to have, um, you know, waiting periods to have their abortion, requiring women to make two trip requirements, telling women uh, incorrect information regarding their abortion. Um, and so there have been a lot of restrictive abortion policies that have been in place and being put in place over the last 10 years. And 2021 was actually the year with the most um, uh, policies, restrictive abortion policies passed since Roe v. Wade, um, you know, legalized abortion in this country. So um, I don't, while I, I don't, um, I wanna recognize that it has already made it very difficult. Abortion was not easy to access in many places in the, of, of the US bef- um, before the Supreme Court ruling. Um, and this certainly is, is the Supreme Court ruling is obviously making it even harder in many of these places. Yeah, no, that's a very true and and be very, very scary, which, you know, leads me to my next question to hopefully end on a note of like positivity, so to speak. But what with like with this all happening my question is like, what now, what what can women do um, specifically women, you know, in states where there, where they went from having a constitutional right to having absolutely no constitutional right. And, you know, I use that New Jersey, Texas example, because I 
grew up in New Jersey, lived in New York, and moved to Texas in 2020. Um, I'm very fortunate that, you know, my parents will always support me, and I have the, the privilege of being able to, you know, fly home, and if need be, if, if anything were to happen. But, you know, at the same time, with um, things like Plan B, not no longer going to be, like, being allowed, it's, it's really crazy to think that, like, that directly affects me. And I'm obviously a, a huge mental health advocate. How can I and how can um, other women protect their mental health at a time when it seems like, I mean, <laughs> every single, well, for one thing, every single day, I feel like I'm getting another notification that there's been another Supreme Court ruling, which I didn't know, like, like, is there something in the air? Like, why are they coming out with all these decisions right now? I'm very confused, but specific to Roe being overturned, like, wh- how can we protect our mental health? And I guess just being in, you know, this line of research, what suggestions um do you have what you know yeah anything that you can provide to help i mean so right so the first thing i would say is right like if this is a distressing time i think for just about everyone of reproductive age right or everyone who and i mean those even people who are not of reproductive age people who have you know have been around and seen roe v wade passed and then and have now seen it overturned i'm sure it's very distressing thinking about future generations as well, right? I, you know, I um, think about my children's, um, right? And so it's distressing from that angle for me. And so I can imagine for, you know, people who have passed the reproductive age, it's distressing for them thinking about their children or their grandchildren, right? And so, I mean, I think you're, I think just knowing that it, this is not, uh, you're not alone, right? That is just, this is distressing. What is happening is, um, is distressing. Um, it, um, and, you know, I would say, don't be a, shame to talk about it. You know, it, it's fine to express the distressing, being distressed about it or being upset with it. Um, and, you know, it's fine to seek out help if, if you need it. Um, I would also say, don't be ashamed about your reproductive decisions, goals, or experiences, um, right? Know that you are um, the best decision maker of what to do with your body um, and, and what, you know, what you're, what to do with your life. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I would just, I would say that. And then finally, I would just give a plug, um, you know, uh, to think about, you know, um, arming yourself with medication, abortion pills, should you need them? Um, right. There is an organization called aid access, which is a website you can go to. So you can, you can just Google aid access, um, which is, which is, you know, committed to providing medication, abortion, um, to people in areas where there are restrictive policies and where, or where you cannot get it. That's super helpful. And, um, yeah, definitely any, you know, organizations, abortion funds that you recommend or, you know, work with, um, I'd love to hear them so that I can put them in the show notes. Um, introducing the grandmother podcast where each week grandparents are interviewed by their own grandchildren sharing stories, exchanging perspectives, and connecting more deeply through authentic first-hand conversations. Featuring incredible people that you've never known, and some that you might, we explore everything from culture and relationships to the kinds of important life lessons that can really only come with experience. 
You can listen to new episodes of Grandmother every Sunday, wherever you listen to podcasts. So to kind of wrap things up and take it on a little bit of a different note, I always end with a few questions that will be somewhat unrelated to this um, discussion, but regardless, I always like to end with them. So first question is, what's one thing in your life that's happened to you that's made you a stronger person today? Um, so what has made me a stronger person today? Um, so I would say, um, when I, I think many people don't know this about me, but when I was, um, yeah, you know, 18, 19, I guess in my second year of college, um, I, uh, developed an eating disorder, which I know is, is, it is a common experience. Um, and you know, I took me some time to overcome that. Um, but with the support of my family, uh, my, uh, which was amazing. Um, I have been able to overcome that. Um, it, it did probably spark some interest in why I was interested in psychological aspects um, of women's issues, um, right. Because they're in our society, right. We, there is this idea of having to be a particular body ideal. Um, and so, and, and it's much more right. Um, stringent for women than it is for men. Um, and so that, that sort of was one interest of mine that I did pursue a little bit in graduate, in graduate school, but, um, I feel that knowing, having had, you know, that was an unfortunate experience, um, but having overcome that um, has certainly um, had, I feel like, made me stronger. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that. And I can definitely relate. I similarly struggled um, with an eating disorder along with many other <laughs> uh, psychological issues, so to speak. And hence, you know, why I have this podcast, why I'm very into mental health. And it's like everyone I've talked to who's, you know, been in, um, who is pursuing becoming a psychotherapist or is now a psychotherapist always says like in like quotes, it's a selfish profession just because, you know, whether it's to learn more about yourself, learn more about, you know, how to support loved ones who have struggled with things in their life. Like I lost a friend to suicide. There's a lot of reasons that I think people want to know why and then like want to know how to fix like and make sure that no one else experiences that. Um, actually, I'm curious to hear your answer to this question being, you know, in the research field and scientific field. Do you believe everything happens for a reason? Um, no, I don't. I believe, I guess, I mean, I would say we all, I mean, in the sense, not from, for some external reason, at least, um, I believe, I mean, I believe we have a large amount of control over how we live our lives, um, or a decent amount of control. I mean, there are certainly things that happen to us that we cannot control, but then we can do something with those things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like I've had a lot of opportunities that I did not expect to have, um, or plan to have, um, but I have been able to seize on those opportunities um, or, you know, even, or not, if I didn't feel that they were fitting at the time. Um, but um, 
I mean, I think there, so there is, this is say, I guess it's a mix of things, right? There is, there is a, there are certain things that happen to us that we don't plan that we're not, that, that have been, um, you know, that we're fortunate in terms of, I didn't choose where I was born or what I was born or what I look like, right. Or what the color of my skin is. Um, so there are a lot of things that we don't choose, um, but we can do things we can then make decisions in our social space and on our world, knowing, um, knowing what we do know about our social world, given what we're given or given what things come at us. Yeah, I agree. I think it's such a vague question that I always just like, like to hear people's responses. Cause I, I just ultimately believe that everything doesn't happen for a reason, but you can find reason in everything that happens and you can, you know, especially, you know, like, for example, when COVID happened, I almost stopped asking that question because it was like, well, <laughs> what is the reason for this? I'd love to know. Or, you know, with all of these current events happening, like don't really can't think of a reason that these are happening. But um, hopefully there's something good that will come out of it in terms of, you know, people being empowered to you know take action and people being empowered to use their voices. Um, next question is, do you have a favorite quote or a mantra that you live by? Um, yeah, no, I am not someone who lives by lots of quotes. Um, or a favorite, like, uh, it could be a favorite book, a favorite, you know, article, anything that is just like something that comes to mind that inspires you, keeps you going, things like that. Yeah. So what inspires me? Um, my children inspire me. Um, but in terms of, I mean, they definitely keep me going. <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, I guess I would just say, I mean, I don't have any, I feel like it's very cheap. Like I feel like, um, the desire to have things more just is what keeps me going. I mean, it's, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that is what keeps me going, thinking that we have, that we can actually, I mean, I guess sometimes you really feel like the you can't, as an individual, you cannot do very much. Um, and, and so there is like a feeling of, um, uh, hopelessness around what you can do. Um, but I think, um, I quickly try to forget about that and still, um, I guess, keep plugging away <laughs> at what I do do or keep going at what I do do because I'm also, I mean, even if I'm not doing very much, um, um, I guess it's, it's better than doing nothing. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's what keeps you going with, you know, my passion for mental health and, even when there's just so much pain in the world and so many people suffering and, you know, hearing about sad things that, you know, go that contradicts like what I've been working for. It, it's still like, I still have hope. Um, next question is what do you love most about yourself? Um, I think I love my discipline. Um, I, as I said, like, I feel like in, in those, moments of feeling like, you know, one person, um, and I'm sometimes it even feel right. Even if you have the most power in the world, even one person can't 
seem to get, you know, make much of a difference. Um, uh, and, and so me, who obviously does not have close to the amount of, like, I can feel like I, um, you know, in terms of thinking about not being, not making a difference, but I, I feel like I'm uh, even with, even feeling that way or recognizing that or being conscious of that, I'm still able to, as I mentioned, just sort of keep plugging along and keep with my discipline of, um, look, the larger goal here is, is, um, you know, is to do this, this larger thing, um, to live in a more, I guess, just world. And here's like sort of my piece of how I do that. Um, and so I think having that allows me to have discipline and, and sort of keep going at it every day. I love that. And yeah. And I think if everyone had that mentality, you know, collectively we could make more change. So very great quality. Um, and the last question, which is the name of uh, the podcast, is how do you find solace in the city? And mm -hmm. city can be, you know, um, I'm, what, oh, I'm forgetting. Where, the, where is the University of Maryland? Is College Park? Oh, we're College Park, yeah. yes. But I live in D.C. I'm in oh, D.C., okay, but DC. yes, I live. But yeah, but but I am in College Park. So how do I do that in D.C.? Is that what you say? Yeah, how do really I find anywhere. Solace? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. So, I mean, I feel like... Um, I don't like, it's not like, I love to be outdoors. Um, I'm definitely an outdoors. I'm, I'm not outdoors right now, even though it looks like it. Um, but I, I love to be outdoors. Um, you know, whether it be hiking or walking on my own, um, or with my kids, my kids love to be outdoors. Um, probably because me and my husband love to be outdoors. Um, you know, last night we went to dinner and then we went and played soccer for a little while outside. Um, and that was, I love doing things like that with my children. That's amazing. Well, Julia, thank you so, so much for coming on this podcast. It's really meant a lot. And um, both for me and I, I'm sure my audience will really appreciate it. And so how can my followers um, support you? How can they support, you know, um, things that you're passionate about? If there are any particular abortion funds that you, uh, you know, know of or connected to just plug anything and everything. Oh, thank you. So thank you very much, Zoe, for having me, first of all. Um, and in terms of plug, I would just say, make sure you know about Aid Access um, and make sure you tell everyone you know about Aid Access. Again, they're an organization that's committed to providing um, people who do not have access to abortion with medication, abortion pills. Um, and then, um, I, I mean, I just, I actually do not have a Twitter account or, or nor, you know, I just have my UMD, uh, website. Um, yes. Yeah, so I will just end there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much and bye everyone. Mm -hmm.